Well, sometimes things, things in general, can be far more significant than we give them credit for. Uh, if you have a look in your outline there, uh, there's a little bowl, uh, a little porcelain ivory kind of bowl there. Um, that bowl was originally bought for $3. There was a man in England, in London, uh, he walked down to that one of those little kind of, you know, those little junky shops, they're kind of cute, walked down to that, picked it up, three bucks, put it in his lounge room, and just kind of sat it there for a few years. He liked it, it was just on a bench in his lounge room. One day, one of his friends came in and kind of noticed it. He said, oh, that's really, that's a really fine kind of bowl. I really like the ivory glaze on that bowl. And it, it kind of got this conversation happening about the bowl there, and so the owner decided to get it valued. Uh, he took it down to a valuer and, and, and this cute little bowl, the valuer came in and said, it's actually not just from down the road, it's not just kind of one of those made in China things, it's actually from a Chinese dynasty way back uh, in the year around 960. Um, this bowl that he bought for $3 actually was valued to be $200,000 worth of value. Quite significant, right? I put it up for auction. Uh, the valuer told him, expect around 200G for that. Uh, and then what happened? A couple of four bidders really wanted it. Sold $2.25 million. <laughs> he picked it up for three bucks. Seven years later, it's sitting on display in a beautiful museum in London. $2.25 million. Some things seem insignificant and small, but they are far more valuable, far more significant than we could ever give them credit for. I think this happens with Christianity, doesn't it? Uh, we as Christians, I think often we underestimate just how significant our faith really is. I think we do this sometimes because there are all sorts of pressure groups, people groups, who try to tell us that Christianity is insignificant. Uh, there's people like the New Atheists uh, who say this. This is a quote from their, from their website. The New Atheists say this, Christianity should not be tolerated, but it should be counted, it should be criticised, it should be exposed by rational argument. We have these voices, these people that say that Christianity is worthless, it's not worth anything. We have secularists in the media uh, people who tell us that the place of religion, if it's not, if we haven't already moved on from it, then the only place for it is really behind closed doors. If you want to do it, then that's okay, but just don't bring it out into the public sphere. We have these voices that, that attack Christianity, these loud voices, which tell us that our faith, Christianity, is insignificant today. Often these voices, I think, to their fault, they fail to see the undeniable good that Christianity has done historically. They fail to see that things like hospitals, things like social welfare, things like education were all actually started by Christian people who were convinced of God's word that they were to love their neighbour as they loved themselves. These things are born out of the Christian faith, the Christian nation. For these groups, they say, that, well, the Bible's teaching on these things is outdated. Uh, we've moved on from there. We've progressed. The way the Bible talks about men and women, they'll say it's outdated. Uh, see you, Gerard. 
Enjoy your international dinner. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Just this week, uh, yes, yesterday, wasn't it, Joel? Yesterday, I stood up and I asked a question in a public forum uh, about the family unit to our politicians. 13 politicians lined up and I was ridiculed for saying that the, the family unit is made up of a man and a woman and that that's the, that's the heart of good society. Even though historically that proves to be true. Every society that thrives has that at its very heart. A man and a woman raising children. But our society has progressed, hasn't it? It's moved on. So Christianity, what Jesus says, what Paul says in the Bible, what God says, well, it's insignificant. Just, if you want it, then just do it over there. Keep it behind closed doors. Don't bring it out in the public. We don't want to hear about it. We've moved on. And you feel it, don't you? You probably feel it in your lectures. Uh, you might, if you're studying science of any type, you would feel this when people say that God is irrelevant to science. Evolution, the theory of evolution has replaced God. I was chatting to Nick the other day. He feels it when, he's, when people talk about the environment. Uh, they say that the Christian mandate that God says in Genesis 1.26 to subdue the world, well, that that is why our world is stuffed. Uh, you feel it in your lectures. There's good answers for those things. I could answer them really briefly. No one's ever proved that matter plus time actually produces information. The evolution theory is a theory. We need someone to kick it off. We need God behind it. Uh, the, the way people talk about Christianity, the creation mandate, uh, to say that God tells people, tells mankind to just kind of um, destroy his creation, it's just a complete irresponsibly, irresponsible way of reading the text. God tells us to tend the garden, to look after it, um, to use it wisely. But we feel these attacks, don't we? You probably feel them in different areas in your university degrees. We feel the pressure here, and I think sometimes this pressure can actually make us think that maybe we should just keep our faith to ourselves. Maybe we shouldn't speak up about our faith. Maybe we should keep it behind closed doors. But the problem Paul says here in Colossians 1, and Paul says it so loud and clear for us tonight, is he says that it's actually not just your faith. It's God's faith. It's, it's the faith about God. It's not just your thing. Christianity is God's thing. It's not something to be kept behind closed doors. No, this is the truth of God. This is what God wants displayed like that bowl in all its glory. This is the most valuable thing in the world. Christianity is not just a $3 jar to keep as a little trinket in our bedrooms. No, it needs to be displayed to the world. The message about Jesus that we have is the most valuable thing that this world affords bar none. Colossians 1 tells us why. Colossians 1 is all about convincing us that our Christian faith, the message we have about Jesus, is the most valuable, the most significant thing that our world could ever know. 
Our passage tonight, it falls into four different parts. Starts off with a little introduction in verses 1 and 2, and we're probably going to spend a little bit longer than you might expect, just on those first two verses. Uh, Paul starts this introduction. Uh, he starts because he wants us to be thinking rightly about different things. He'll then move on to give thanks to God for the way that God saves people in verses 3 to 8. Uh, in verses 9 to 11, he'll pray to God that God would give Christians a knowledge of the significance of their own faith. It's alright, I'm just going through the structure. This is pretty basic stuff. And then at the end, chapters, verses 12 to 14, Paul will wrap it up by showing us that it's not just significant for this world, Christianity is actually eternally significant. So that's where we're going, that's on your outline. So let's get stuck into it. Have a look there, verses 1 and 2. Uh, we see here at the start of the letter, Paul, uh, Paul addressing this letter to a small church in a town called Colossae. Uh, this is an inland city in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and surprisingly, Paul starts this letter by talking about himself. Have a look there in verse 1. Verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Literally, Paul, a sent one from Jesus the King. Apostle, you see, it means sent one. It means messenger. If you're fighting a battle and you're fighting it on two different fronts, say the king's fighting over here and you're fighting over here, if the king wanted to bring a message to over here, he would send a messenger, an apostle. And that person would not speak on their own authority, but they'd speak on the authority of the king. That's what Paul's saying about himself. He's saying, I've come with a message from the king, from King Jesus. Uh, Paul's not, not introducing himself to kind of up himself to say, hey, I'm Paul. No, he's saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus. I'm a sent one. So these words that we're going to read in Colossians over the rest of this term, we're going to be spending the rest of this term in Colossians, we need to hear that these words aren't just the words of a normal man like Paul. No, these words are the words of Jesus. These words are the words of the Son of God himself. The one who we know, as we looked at Luke earlier in the year, came to this world as God's Son, who died on that cross and rose again. The one who defeated death. The one who's back in heaven now. It's on that authority that these words come. They come from the King, Jesus. These are God's words. And that makes a difference, doesn't it? I mean, if these were just Paul's words, if these were just the words of men, then we could take them or leave them. But if this is the word of God, if God sent his messenger to speak to us, then it makes a difference how we hear them. We'll sit up and listen. So these words, they're sent to us through Paul with the authority of Jesus. And do you notice that they come by the will of God? That's the next little clause. They come by the will of God. It'll become clear as we preach our way through Colossians what the will of God is. Um, what I want to see briefly tonight is that the will of God is actually much more than things like what sort of job I would have or the person who I might marry. The will of God is actually much bigger than that. Uh, the will of God, we will see, 
Uh, next week in particular, uh, as we look in chapter 1, verse 19, we'll see that the will of God is actually all about Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 19, the will of God is that Jesus would be glorified. The will of God is, is his purpose for all of creation with Jesus at the very centre. God's will, essentially, is that people would be saved through Christ and worship him. That's not often that much about us. Often, God's will, the way it speaks about it in the Bible, is about God's will for his son. It's bigger. There's a big plan. God's purposes. And it's for that reason, I think, that Paul can say that he's an apostle by the will of God. Paul's an apostle by the will of God because he's working in line with God's purpose. Paul is a guy who's coming with the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. That's what Paul is doing. He's telling people about the significance of Jesus. And that, I think, helps us to thirdly think rightly about ourselves, doesn't it? So what we see next here in verse 2 is that Paul addresses this letter after he's introduced himself. He starts to talk about us. Uh, he, he addresses the letter to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. This clause teaches us about who we are as Christians. It uses the word saints. Uh, saints here doesn't mean people like St. John or St. Mary, as we might hear sometimes. No, people, no saints here actually means people who are holy people who are set apart. That's the meaning of saint, someone who is set apart for God's purpose. You might remember uh, the book of Exodus. Um, God called his people Israel a holy nation, a saintly nation. Why? Well, because they were set apart to do God's will, to fulfill God's purpose. God chose them, he set them apart for that purpose. And so Paul says to us, that's who you are as a Christian. If you're a Christian person here tonight, you're a saint. You're someone who has been set apart for God's purpose in the world. Set apart to work for God. And we see next that those people are faithful. See there in verse 2, this letter is to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. These people are faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? It means to believe in Jesus, have faith in him. Christians are people who are set apart, but they are people who believe that Jesus is the most significant person to have ever lived. They've given their lives to him. They've given their lives to follow him. And what we see next is, well, they're called brothers. And this throws us a little bit sometimes, doesn't it? Um, in our gender-neutral uh, day today, I think just to hear the word brothers there can throw us. Um, literally, uh, the best probably translation of this word would be the word siblings, I think. A lot of our, a lot of the, um, translations have brothers and sisters, and that's very true of the original. This is an inclusive word. Um, the problem with writing brothers and sisters, I think, is that it actually unties a little bit of the unity that Paul's trying to go for here. Um, I reckon if we went with siblings, that'd be nice. Or God's children, that'd be nice. That's who we are. 
That's what Paul's trying to get at with this word, with people who have been brought together in one family through Christ, in Christ, to do his will, to be set apart for his purpose. That's what Paul's telling us about ourselves. He says you are saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. You have been set apart. Those who believe in Jesus have been set apart to do God's purpose, to fulfill God's will. And finally, we see that we are to be united in this task. Have a look there in verse 2. Uh, after telling it, sorry, after saying that we're united, Paul tells us that we need how to actually think about our lives. We're to know that our lives are defined by this next clause, grace and peace. These two words, grace and peace, they come up a lot in the Bible, and Paul says this is how you're to think of yourself. This is how you're to understand your life as someone who has received grace and peace. Paul says that we're not to define ourselves as whether we're a student or a worker. We're not to define ourselves as whether we're a sporty person or a computer gamer person. We're not to define ourselves whether we're a farmer's union person or a dare ice coffee person. None of those things. No, the way we define ourselves, Paul says, is by this very significant phrase, grace and peace. What is grace? Grace is an undeserved gift from God. It's God's kindness shown to us in Christ. Grace, the gift that God gives us, is the gift that brings us peace. Peace with God so we can call him Father. The gift is Jesus. The gift is new life that comes through Jesus. Grace and peace. Grace and peace is how we to understand who we are as people. Know that about yourself, Paul says. Know that that's who you are, that you are people who have received grace and now have peace with God. You can call him Father. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, you no longer need to fear him. You no longer need to fear death and judgment because Jesus has died for you because God has given you grace and through Christ has made peace. That's how you are to know yourself as someone who can call God a kind father who's given you a new life. I took a while, didn't it? Get to, through two verses. Uh, the rest of the verses won't take quite that long. But I think it's important, isn't it? It's important for us to get our thinking right. That's what Paul's trying to do right at the start of this letter. Help us think rightly about who we are. He's trying to help us think rightly about these things which will actually carry us so that we can do what he wants us to do in the rest of the letter. So we need to get our thinking right. We need to know that these words are God's words. We need to know that God has set us apart for his purpose. And finally, we need to know that God has saved us by his sheer goodness and grace. They're the things that we need to know. And that's what Paul goes on to celebrate in this next section, in verses 3 to 8. Paul goes on to give thanks to God for these very things. Have a look there, verse 3. Paul starts this next section by giving thanks to God for what he's done for the Christians in Colossae. Paul thanks God, not because he's given them good circumstances, not because they've got a nice family or because they did well at their uni marks, 
No, Paul gives thanks because of something much deeper. Paul gives thanks for something that he can give thanks for despite those kind of circumstances of life. See, Paul is thankful here for salvation. Paul is thankful that God has saved Christians. Paul is thankful particularly that God has given Christians three big things. Faith, hope and love. They're the three big things. Have a look there, verse 3 and 4. Paul writes, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. What's God done for Christians? Well, he's given them faith in the Lord Jesus. He's given them a love for other Christians. And finally, he's given them hope. He's given them a hope that's laid up for them in heaven. A hope that is eternal and everlasting. A hope that is everlasting joy. To be at God's right hand, to live with him in that perfected world, free from death and pain. That that world of life and joy. That is what Paul is so thankful for in these verses. He's thankful that God gives the Christians faith, belief. He's thankful that God makes them loving people. And he's thankful that he gives them that wonderful hope. But the question is, well, how does God do this? How do Christians, how do people become Christian? How, how do people get faith, hope and love? How does that actually happen? Well, Paul spells it out in the next verse, in verses 5 and 6. Have a look there, second half of verse 5. Of this, that is hope, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. How do people come to have faith, hope and love? How do people become Christian? Well, it's by hearing the word of the gospel. By hearing the good news that God sent his son Jesus to come and die on this world, to die on that cross to take away the sins of the world. So when people have faith in him, believe in him, they can have everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's how people are saved. By believing this message about Jesus. It's by hearing this message, you see, that we can believe, that we can have faith. If we don't hear the message, how can we believe? It's by understanding the message, how much God has loved us, that actually compels us to be loving people. And finally, it's by knowing that message, being certain of it, that we can have hope. Hope for a new world with Jesus as our King. Hope for a new world where Jesus reigns, where we no longer live in a world under the reign of death. See, it's by hearing this message of the gospel that we come to have faith, hope and love. It doesn't happen any other way. And it's this message, you see, that's not to be hid behind closed doors. It's not to be hid away. Now look at verse 6. Have a look there at verse 6. It says, This message which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, is bearing fruit and increasing. See, the gospel, the message of Jesus, is for the whole world. 
God's plans have always been for the whole world. They've been for the nations. God wants a world that honours his son. God wants a world where people love each other properly. God wants a world where people look after his environment. But most importantly, God wants a world where people love Jesus and live for him. That's God's will. God wants people in the world, all over the world, to have their faith and their hope and their love in Christ. See, if our faith and our hope are just in ourselves, then we'll never love people properly, will we? We'll just love ourselves. We'll always be trampling over other people, trying to get things just for ourselves. But if our faith and our hope are in Jesus, if we believe that his ways are the best ways, and if we believe that we'll live for him, then we'll actually be loving people. We'll be sacrificial in the way we love. We'll give things up because we know how much he's given up for us. We'll love others more than we love ourselves because our hope won't be in just getting stuff now, but it will be in the hope to come. So we can never have this kind of good society which people are trying to get now by leaving Christianity behind. We can never get it by leaving Christianity behind because we're sinful people. We need to have our faith and our hope and our love found in Christ because it's only as he gives us the power that we can actually be loving people. So how did the Colossians get this faith, hope and love that allows us to live properly? Well, they got it by hearing the word of the gospel. They got it as a guy called Epaphras went and told them the message of grace and truth. We see it there in the end of verse 6. Have a look there. I'll read the end of verse 6 to verse 8. The Colossians found faith, hope and love since the day they heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. These Christians in Colossians, you see, they heard and they understood the grace of God in truth as some guy called Epaphras told it to them. There's nothing special about Epaphras. Most likely, he heard the gospel from Paul when he went to Ephesus, and then when he went back to his hometown of Colossae, he just started telling people about Jesus. started telling them the message of God's grace. About God's grace, how God sent his son to die for the sins of the world. He started telling them the truth, that all people can be forgiven if they just take hold of this message of Jesus. That's pretty simple, isn't it? God saves people, he brings them to faith as they hear the word of grace and truth. That's what we're planning on doing all next week. That's what we want to be doing at Mission Week. We're going to be telling people over and over and over again the message of Jesus, the message of grace and truth. And like Paul, we'll be praying. We'll be praying that God would give them the understanding. We'll be praying that God would give them faith to believe this message so that they can have the eternal hope that compels them to love their neighbours as themselves. See, that's what Paul is so thankful for here in verses 3 to 8. He's thankful that God saves people by the word of grace and truth. And as we move on in this chapter, 
we see that Paul now turns to pray for the Christians themselves. He's been thanking God for the way that God saves, but now he actually turns and he prays to ask God for something in verses 9 to 11. He asks God that Christians might know and understand God's will and purposes. Have a look there at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul could have prayed for lots of things, couldn't he? Paul's writing from prison, he could have prayed that maybe God would get him out of prison. Didn't do that. No, most significantly, he prays one thing for Christians. He prays that Christians would know what God wills for the world, what God desires for the world. So if we don't know what God wants, if we don't know what he wants to achieve, what his will is, then we won't be able to work with him. We won't be able to achieve what he wants us to achieve. So what is this will of God that Paul prays that we would know? Well, the will of God is his purpose for all creation. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us what the will of God is. He tells us that the will of God is that all things in heaven and on earth would be united in Christ. That's the will of God. That all things in heaven and on earth would be united in Christ. God's will is that his son would be glorified and worshipped as king. That's God's will. You want to know what God's will is? You want to know what God's will is for your life? God's will for your life is that you would praise and worship Jesus as king. And that's spiritual wisdom. See that verse 9 talks about spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is knowing that Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the king. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul tells us that the only way that people would put their hope in a guy that got crucified on a cross is if the Spirit of God himself did a work in them to show them that that is glory, that that is God's truth. Anyone else who looks at a crucified man on a cross just goes, that's foolishness. Why would I believe in that? That's why this is called spiritual wisdom. Paul says the Spirit of God reveals that to us, changes our hearts so that we can see that Jesus, the one who died on the cross, is the one who takes away the sins of the world and is the one who is the risen King. Only the Spirit of God can confirm that truth in our hearts. Only the Spirit of God can give us faith to believe that. So Paul says, verse 10, seeing now that you know what the will of God is, knowing that the will of God is to worship Jesus as King, he says, verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Live your life in a way that shows that you exalt Jesus as King. Walk in ways that please Him. Be obedient to Him and therefore fulfill the will of God. In verse 11, Paul goes on and he prays that God would give us strength to do this. Strength to work for Jesus' glory and not our own. Strength to endure with patience and with joy. How do we get this strength? How do we endure with patience and joy? Well, we get it by remembering the word of the gospel. 
We get it by knowing just how wonderful it is what Christ has done for us. We get it by knowing what comes next, by knowing the eternal significance of what it means to be a Christian. That's what strengthens us, when we know that we've been rescued from hell and been given heaven. That's what strengthens us. So have a look there at the close of this last section. Paul finishes by reminding us of what we have in Christ. Three big things Paul tells us here in verses 12 to 14. Firstly, he tells us, if you're a Christian person here tonight, he tells you this. Verse 12, he says, you have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Because of your faith in Christ, you've been given a guernsey in heaven. Jesus' death has given you a ticket to heaven. You don't need to do anything more. You're already there. Know that. Paul says, first and foremost. That's where you're heading. That's your destination. So start living that way. Secondly, verse 13, he says, you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. You who in your sin deserve to be in that domain of darkness, to be cast out from God's presence for all eternity because of our sin, you've been plucked out of that. Not because of anything that you did, but because he died on the cross for us. You have been plucked out of hell and taken to heaven. You've been transferred to the kingdom of Jesus who gives us eternal life. And do you notice how these incredible things have happened? These two things about how we've been given the ticket to go to heaven how we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. How have they happened? Well, verse 14, it's in him. It's in Jesus. It's because he redeemed us. Because he brought us back from death to life. Because he paid our debt on that cross of death. He died for us so that we could live, so that our sins could be forgiven. It's incredible, isn't it? It's worth just stopping and and letting this sink in. What's actually happened to us, to our Christian. And you see, this is the will of God. This is what God is doing in the world. God wants people to find life, to find forgiveness, to join him for eternity and to be gathered together to glorify his son. So we need to be thinking rightly, don't we? We need to know the wonder of our salvation. We need to know God's will and his purposes for our world. And when we know what he's done for us, then I think we'll start working for him. We'll get on board with what he's doing. We'll see just how significant our faith really is, that it has eternal significance, that it is far too valuable to keep behind closed doors. See, when we know the wonder of our salvation, when we let that sink in, we'll see that even though our world tells us that it's just a $3 vase, that it's just worthless and insignificant, we'll know that that's not true. And so what will we do? Well, we'll hold out to them the most valuable thing that this world affords. We'll display it because it's beautiful and wonderful. And people need to see it. 
We'll display the good news of Jesus over and over again, even if our world tells us to take it away. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the gospel is a treasure hidden in jars of clay. It says we are, are the clay jars. There's nothing all that special about us. Nothing all that special about us, but what we have, the good news of Jesus, well, it is so special. It needs to go on display. The world needs to hear it. So my question to you is, will you join us next week in displaying this message just in the SU? Will you invite your friends to come? We get on board with what God is doing in the world. We get on board with God's will of seeing people glorify His Son, of displaying His goodness and His grace to people. Will you join us? That's what next week is all about. We'll pray. Our Father, we are just in awe of the wonder of it of the gospel, the fact that you would care enough to come and die for us, that you, when you looked at us, we were your enemies in our sin, but yet you set your love on us and you took us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your glorious light. Father, I pray that you would change our hearts so that we would get on board with what you are doing in the world. Father, empower us to share your gospel. Empower us to invite our friends to hear your gospel preached. Empower us by your spirit to have the strength and the boldness to hold out the gift of life to a world that is dying. Father, we pray that in your grace and in your mercy you would save many people next week here in Bendigo through our words about our wonderful Saviour. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory, and not our own. Amen.